0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Welcome everyone. So I'm starting a new subject tonight. We've been talking over the last month about renunciation which is one of the ten paramis, these perfections of the heart, uh, simple, commonsensical description of a happy, wise, loving human being, the kind of qualities that might be present, like generosity, like uh, non-harming, like renunciation, Wisdom, truthfulness, patience, loving kindness, equanimity, resoluteness, energy. I think those are the 10. So uh, the next one is what we call wisdom, or panya. And obviously, the whole path, uh, especially the way the Buddha taught, is really a path of wisdom. And some of you, some of you have heard this before. But the Buddha characterizes our predicament as human beings is that we're misperceiving things. We're not seeing clearly. And because of that, not seeing things clearly, you know, we're projecting uh, imputing something here and now. And that pattern or that habit sets something in motion that we call suffer- suffering or stress. Because we're living as if things are other than they actually are. So our actions, our thoughts, our views don't match up, aren't in alignment with the way things are. And the easiest way to understand this, and we'll be talking about this for several weeks, is just the sense of self. Like, we always are projecting and imputing a sense of me Right? Every moment of our life, almost. There's a, if we're aware, there's a sense of me having an experience, me wanting to fix this, me wanting to get rid of this, me being embarrassed. And that's a particular projection. Now, to want to stop projecting that isn't the path, but to get interested in that, like, to breathe in and be clear that that attitude or that view is arising, is happening, and to accept it, to see it clearly. That's the path. So wisdom is often synonymous with clarity or seeing things as they are. Wisdom isn't about fixing things. It's about understanding things. So if you're talking to a friend about what you do, you can talk about, well, I'm 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 finding ways to develop mindfulness or I'm finding ways to develop clarity so I can better understand the way things are. Better understand, for example, how this heart ends up suffering and better understand how this heart, this mind can be in the world without suffering. It's really pragmatic in that way. And we want to make the connection between clarity, wisdom, and non-suffering. Because that's really the point, at least in the Buddhist tradition, the point of wisdom is to understand suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha made us very clear. In many places, in the discourses through his 45 years of teaching, he very simply and clearly said, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. So, the wisdom we're developing in practice, you know, we're generating, we're learning how to be more mindful, more clear, or more aware, this clear, uh, non-distorted awareness, present moment awareness, in the service of seeing suffering, seeing what leads to suffering, and seeing non-suffering and what leads to non-suffering, so we can make the choice to non suffering as opposed to out of habit going to suffering over and over again. In a very simple way, you know, when we're sitting, you know, at the beginning of the sit, and you feel just the ordinary ache of a body that often we feel when we're sitting. And it just seems so appropriate out of habit to resist the unpleasant sensations. Like, oh, my knee hurts. You know and the, the various ways of resisting is like trying to fix it, or distracting ourselves from it, denying that the knee hurts. But as we emphasize mindfulness, clarity, we'll see that resistance, controlling, trying to fix, judging it, denying it, all of those strategies, if they have any positive effect, that positive effect is temporary, and they themselves are stressful. Those strategies are stressful. So that—that's one of the great gifts of clarity: is that we see that so much of what we do to be happy causes stress in the mind. You know, for example, if we're single and we want to be in a relationship, um, having the thought "I want to be in a relationship." is stressful now on some theoretical level it might be really nice to be in a wholesome relationship but wanting to be in a wholesome relationship or craving being in a wholesome relationship is stressful, it's suffering and to really understand that's actually what's happening now the craving of this, the craving of that the fearing of this the fearing of that and to be clear means we get to see that for what it is. You see how that begins to correct our habits, our views. Sylvia Borstein and her really wonderful book, Pay Attention, for Goodness' Sake, Practicing the Perfections of the Heart, The Buddhist Path of Kindness. It's a wonderful book on the ten paramis. So we're right in the middle, not even quite in the middle of these, so we'll be doing it for probably more than six months. If you it's in paperback now, so if you're interested in getting a hold of it, Sylvia Bursting. She's one of the senior teachers at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Northern California. She's got this uh, section here in this chapter on wisdom, where she's talking about undoing this habit you know, of reacting, of fighting, of denying. She lightens it to changing the Mississippi, the direction of the Mississippi River. See, i we read, read this little section here. She starts by telling a story about a retreat she went to when she was just beginning her practice. And I don't know who the teacher was, but evidently the teacher said something like, I'm about to tell you the kind of insights that will arise in your practice that will be very liberating for you. And Sylvia's thought, before the person finished saying what those liberating insights are going to be, her thought was, don't tell me. You know, like somehow feeling he's going to ruin it or she's going to ruin it by telling me. I want experience to them, experience them directly. I don't want to be told. It's like somebody telling you the plot of a novel or a movie. So the person, the teacher, went on to describe one way the Buddha formulated or talked about that what arises when we have a clear and accepting attitude, moment by moment, what are the natural insights that will arise? And one way he talked about them was in terms of the Four Noble Truths. In another way, related way, are the three characteristics, seeing the uh, changing nature of things, or what Sylvia calls the insight, everything is always changing. And then the second one is the insight into dukkha, or stress, or suffering. But Sylvia says, suffering is extra tension created in the mind when it struggles. And then the third insight, aspect of the insight, or way of understanding insight, is anatta, or the not-self or impersonal quality of all phenomena. Here Sylvia says, nothing has a substantive existence separate from everything else, or indeed any existence at all apart from contingency, apart from being the result of complex causes and a factor in subsequent experience. Nothing has a substantive existence separate from everything else. So this is really about interdependency, one of the more subtle, difficult to understand parts of the Buddhist teachings. But even this, I think, on this intellectual level, is commonsensical. All of this stuff is commonsensical. In fact, this section, you know, Sylvia calls uncommon common sense. You know, that everything's changing, this is something we all kind of know. I mean, it doesn't shock us when we hear that. And that, you know, we create extra tension when we resist or when the mind struggles. That's kind of commonsensical. And the last, that nothing exists outside of everything else. That we're all fundamentally tied together. Like, so much of who I think I am, even on this conceptual level, like, who I think I am is relative to everybody else I know. Like, I know I'm not mad. And that helps define, for me, helps me define who I am. You know, I'm not a woman, I'm a man. So, so much of who we think we are is part of this kind of conceptual universe that we share and co-create together. A whole life is uh, whole existence is interdependent in this way. So it is common sense goal, and this is what the teacher told Sylvia. And as she developed her practice, she realized that even though I did, I understood it when the teacher said it, I maybe even understood it before the teacher said it doesn't mean that we can understand it more deeply, more directly, more often, and really begin to live that. I mean, if we really understand, like we already do, right? We all, I bet if we did a poll or forced everybody to own up, you know, do you believe struggling works? You know, theoretically we'd say struggling is stressful, that so much of my life uh, is arising due to conditions due to causes outside of my control that struggling is limited at best you know most of us would say something like that Yet yeah, most of the time we struggle we resist we deny we're in this adversarial relationship with our life or with particular conditions in our life. Even when things are good, we're struggling to make them stay good longer. Or struggling, you know, for things not to fall apart as they inevitably do. So she goes on, you know, a couple pages later, I remember more consistently That although I try as hard as I can and hope as hard as I can, I am not in charge. Everything is always changing. And so nothing can be permanently satisfying. And I, now this is important, nothing can be permanently satisfying. But don't we pursue things as if they're going to be permanently satisfying? The kind of force behind our trying to make something work, even silly things work. You know, like wanting the meal to just be perfect. Even though if somebody asks us, do you expect that to be satisfying in any kind of permanent way? We'd say, of course not. But in the moment of our sort of struggling to make this meal just right, make it look just right, if we look at the state of mind, we'll notice that there's a charge as if it really matters in some permanent way that we get it right that it turns out just right that this interaction turns out this right this talk turns out just right everything is always changing and so nothing can be permanently satisfying and I absolutely know that railing and resenting when I'm displeased with life's unfolding compounds my pain life unfolds lawfully guided by conditions far too complex for me to know it's certainly far beyond my control. Those insights sounded right to me when I first heard them from my teachers. But hearing alone was not enough to change my mind's habit of resisting and struggling. I needed to meditate. I needed to pay attention. My habits of suffering, grieving, resenting, fretting began to change when I could feel my mind from one moment to the next unite itself um, I'm sorry. Untie itself from a knot of painful struggle. Over and over again, each untying happened in a moment of clear seeing. This is what's happening. It, it cannot be otherwise. Struggling is extra. Struggling is suffering. Right? And this is this is the real work of practice. So, for example, if you took my suggestion tonight in the sit, breathing in, clear. Exhaling acceptance or ease or something like that. So, then, in that, you know, if those words, those meditation words, as we're with the breath and as we're with other predominant experience, if we can bring that clear, like a mirror like mind that just sees things as they are with acceptance, then we're going to see over and over again just what you said. This is what's happening. It cannot be otherwise. Doesn't mean that we're not. We're saying that it's got to continue this way. We're just saying that this moment, as it is already, can't be otherwise. It's already this way, and it can't be otherwise. Struggling is extra. Struggling is suffering. To see that over and over again is, as Sylvia suggests, an untying. It's what pops the drama. Or it's what helps the heart in that moment to release a little or to release a lot. Every time we have that clarity, that acceptance, it's very clear what leads to suffering. And it's very natural in a way effortless for the mind or heart to let go of what leads to suffering. In a way, I think it's fair to say that the mind, as impersonal as it is, the mind will not, in the space of awareness, in the space of clarity, will not do something that's painful. I mean, it won't struggle, it won't resist, it won't deny. Those things only happen when the mind is distorted or not clear. Why would a clear mind do something that creates suffering, creates stress? Nobody consciously creates stress. We do it because we're not paying attention. We don't realize the consequences of what we're doing with the mind. So you see what a catalyst clarity is for freedom. We can't go directly to freedom because freedom's already here. So any attempt. To go to freedom is already ignorance you know it's like it's based on assumption i'm not free i'm screwed up i got to get myself to freedom and we're in this mode that's that's inherently stressful which is i don't like who or what i am now but i have this idea of a free mark a liberated mark an enlightened mark and i want to get there and so somehow energetically we push away who we think we are now, and grasp after who we want to be, all of which is stressful. So clarity is what reveals or illuminates this predicament. You know how struggling doesn't work, resistance, denial doesn't work, and then that itself is a release. Each and time re re. Uh, oh, I can't see anymore reroutes each and time reroutes the mind in the direction of new wisdom in a way that makes enduring clarity seem feasible albeit a formidable task like changing the course of the Mississippi one bucket of sand at a time and this is what we discover and actually generates tremendous confidence or faith is we see that these unwholesome, unskillful habits can be abandoned, and there's a, an immediate relief when we, when the heart abandons, lets go of its habit of struggling or resisting or denying, distracting itself. And then, you know, once we see that we can move from relative unclarity, like being caught up in our distorted notions that I've got to struggle, I've got to resist, I need to deny this, I can't take this, I've got to withdraw. Once we uh, sort of release that or get some clarity, some freedom from that, then like part of that confidence is understanding that this could be developed to the nth degree. Even though we might have a sense that these are very big habits, they're not going to go away soon we can have a lot of confidence that this is the path. It's like learning how to be, uh, learning how to orient in the direction of clarity and acceptance. This is the path. Learning how, through that clarity and acceptance, to see resistance and to see it be released. And even even though it's like there's a lot of seeing that needs to happen and a lot of releasing that needs to happen, there's a really beautiful sense of, well, I just got to keep doing what I'm doing. Just keep taking the next step. Keep showing up in the next moment. Just another moment of mindfulness. And no matter how many times we lose it, we can just start again. Like this beautiful image that Sharon Salzberg has about the tightrope. Some of you probably heard me talk about it or read in one of Sharon Salzberg's books about this particular teaching story about how practice is like walking on a tightrope and if we get greedy, we fall off. If we get aversive, pushing away, striking out, we fall off. If we get dull or diluted, we fall off the tightrope. But we always land back on the tightrope here in the present moment again. And so this is part of that confidence, you know, like Even though it's like rerouting the Mississippi River, it's not a problem. If all we have to do is lift one bucket full of sand at a time, well, we can do that. If we think about the whole project, we're diluted. We've got this idea, I have to change the course of this river. But that's not what we have to do. We just have to breathe in, be clear, exhale, Exact. That's all we have to do, just in this moment. And that's something we actually can do. And this is the important uh, dynamic between the process of practice and the aspiration for liberation or freedom or true wisdom, compassion, and happiness. I mean, the Buddha was clear about this should be our aspiration. It is possible for human beings to be free from suffering, no matter the conditions. Now imagine if tomorrow morning, as I think Sharon says in this chapter, imagine tomorrow morning the front lines of the New York Times is something like uh, you know, the most respected scientists in the world, all of them together have uh, um, definitive proof that true happiness is available for all human beings no matter the particular conditions of their mind and body. I mean that would be that would be pretty astounding, like if we had proof. And the interesting thing is we we basically, I think arrogantly, believe the opposite is absolutely true. That happiness is only available when conditions are such and such. Like, for example, is there anybody in the room who feels that, given the particular conditions of your body and mind right now, or more generally in your life these days, is suitable for true, complete happiness and love and wisdom? Does anybody feel like you have everything you need? That this ordinary life that we're living, this ordinary experience of the body, this ordinary set of mental conditioning that we have is suitable. Don't we feel like we need a different set of equipment in order to be really happy and free and and really loving in the way that we might imagine a human being can be loving or wise in the way we can imagine a human being could be wise. But, you know, that's not what our teachers tell us. That's not what the Buddha says. That it is available so the thing is if we get we need that aspiration but then we need to understand that the work is right here in this moment it's only this moment that we need to be concerned about we don't need to be concerned about being that fully enlightened being we just need to be concerned with being clear and accepting of this mind-body experience right now. Like, if we want freedom, peace, ease, if we want the experience of intimacy, or real love and compassion, well, this is the place. This mind-body experience is the place to realize that. Not by thinking about the future, or thinking about how we've messed up in the past, kind of blew our opportunity. But really applying the mind or heart here and now, in the present moment. If we want to be free, then let's practice being free here. So in order to be free, then like I said earlier, we have to take that step back. Well, what do we need to be free? We have to see what's in the way. So that emphasis on clarity, honesty, you know, honestly seeing, feeling what's predominant. And accepting it that's enough we don't need to fix what we see that the scene is enough this is like uh, that third insight is understanding that even wisdom is a conditional happening right the mind or the heart releasing resistance letting go of resistance letting go of struggling letting go of judging letting go of craving in all the different afflictive states of mind that letting go is also a conditioned happening it will happen when there's clarity in the mind and like I mentioned in the guided sit the acceptance and the clarity they really work together they're really not different things how can we how can the mind be clear if it's not accepting things like if we're struggling then the struggle itself is distorting what's happening. We can't see, understand what's happening if we're engaged in a struggle. Because the struggle comes out of a very strong assumption, which is there's something bad or there's something good. Because in order to struggle in the present moment, we have to have a sense that I can get something better or I can get rid of something bad. And see, that assumption goes unquestioned when we're struggling, and it distorts the mind. So clarity and acceptance come together. When we have clarity and acceptance, we can call that wisdom or the beginning of wisdom. And we start to see things like the three characteristics that Sylvia described or the Buddha described, really. Impermanence, the stressfulness of struggling, and the conditional impersonal nature of things. And we can see how suffering arises out of not seeing these things clearly because when we don't see these things clearly, we feel justified in struggling. And when we struggle, we realize the experience of stress. And so we struggle some more to get rid of the stress. And we experience stress. So we struggle more. And then we get a life like we have where we feel like we're struggling a lot. And resisting a lot and then because we're weighed down by all of that stress from struggling we feel like we want a break so we fantasize about breaks and then we crave them you know the vacations the partners whatever we feel will give us a break from all the stress of struggling but that's more struggling more stress and then we start getting angry because we're, we're feeling stressed And all of our attempts to get relief from the stress have also been stressful. Then we start getting angry. And our anger, our aversion, our denial, that also is stressful. And this is like we see this so well if we just look around us. And then with a little more effort, we see it inside of us just the sort of basic structure of our habits, this habit of struggling And then that's struggling leading to stress, and so struggling some more. So this path of wisdom, or this quality of wisdom, really is mostly about uh, a paradigm shift. So we're stopping our normal, conventional way of relating being in the world. We're sort of, wait a minute, let's just stop. And in that stopping, partly because we're getting some teachings, partly because we just stumble upon it ourselves, we recognize, I don't know what the hell is going on. So it's like that's the beginning of an interest in clarity. And then once we're interested in clarity, we see that our constant habit to fix and struggle is getting in the way. So we're willing to play with putting that aside for a while. let me just accept things let me just stop for a moment and see what's going on put down the struggle put down the resistance put down the different assumptions that I have about the moment and just see and then we start to discover all kinds of things like the scene is natural the clarity comes naturally when we stop struggling and it disappears when we do start to struggle another place in this chapter, Sylvia says, suffering arises by demanding that things be different from how they are. And then a little later says, there are only two possible responses to every challenge, balanced acceptance or embittered resistance. Knowing that freedom depends on acceptance is what erases complaining. Complaining is simply unwise right but that's what our mind does most of the time it's complaining to ourselves mostly you know often to other people but we don't need other people around to complain so the essence of wisdom is first this first recognition that what we're doing isn't working that our basic strategies for happiness are stressful and so that leads to, like I said, this sort of like voice that says, "Stop! I don't know what's going on. Stop! Like stop my habits from like using my habits to try to be happy because the, because there's enough sense this isn't working. So the stopping, and then in the stopping, the sort of next step in insight or wisdom is understanding that. How I'm relating in the moment, how the mind is relating, how the mind is seeing, really matters. If we're seeing from our habit point of view, which is, i got to struggle to get happiness. And if it's not working, it's because I'm not struggling hard enough or struggling in the right way. So let me try struggling in this other way. that how we relate matters. So that attitude we see has certain consequences. And another way of understanding or relating will have different consequences. So we start to see that the particular view or attitude we bring to our experience has a lot to do with whether we're struggling or suffering, rather, or not. This uh, Maybe I'll just end with this last point. Which is, as we, as we get an intuitive sense of what wisdom is, that this aspect of clarity and acceptance, and understanding that how we relate makes a big difference. And that to ignite this paradigm shift, to change the way that we're relating, first and foremost, is about stopping. And then in the stopping, Noticing that all of our habitual inclinations don't work. You've got to keep seeing that the habit, the impulse to struggle, to resist, to deny, to distract doesn't work. I mean, how many times when we're sitting watching the breath do we see the mind wanting to plan or wanting to worry? Over and over again we see that doesn't work. It doesn't help to worry about this one more time, to plan this one more time remember that relationship one more time to hope about the future one more time we see that it's actually stressful we got to really see that and what allows us to see that this is this quality of kindness you know this I I use the word um, clarity and acceptance but acceptance is really the beginning of compassion and kindness tapping in this natural inherent wellspring that arises naturally when we see how much of our conditioned habits don't help and the only way we can see that is if, if, if the mind is grounded in compassion or kindness or acceptance So these are the two qualities that you can just begin both in your daily life and then specifically in your sitting practice. Take a few minutes at the beginning of the sit to remember clarity, that mirror-like capacity to mind to simply know how it is and in particular to notice what's predominant, what's charged or what is drawing the attention. And to notice that, that clarity fundamentally depends on love or compassion or acceptance they're like th- uh, two sides of the same thing to, to be that honest and direct and uh, open requires this foundation of love of deep caring it's like this tenderness that I don't want to just continue doing what I've always done getting what I've always gotten each attempt to be happy leading to stress, leading to disappointment, which only want leads me to want to be happy more in an unproductive way, which leads to stress and disappointment. So seeing that enough reveals the heart, this great heart of compassion. I care. It's, that's what says stop. It's the heart that cares, the compassion that says stop, wait a minute. Let's take a closer look. Let's relax. Even though I feel like I might be spiraling into hell. Seems like everything I've done to avoid spiraling into hell (laughs) speeds it up. (laughs) So let me just stop for a moment. Let me just stop. Not out of desperation, because that promotes the spiraling into hell. So we stop out of love, out of compassion. Wait a minute, what's going on here? I care about this life. I care about this heart. I care about all of us together doing the same thing, wanting to be happy but doing exactly what leads to not being happy, being stressed. So I'll continue talking about this in the weeks ahead, but it might be nice to hear from people your own experience of turning this corner, you know, and, of course, this turning this corner happens thousands of times, so it isn't like a one-time paradigm shift, because we're going to be sucked back into our habits of struggling with life, struggling with conditions over and over again. But as many times we fall off that tightrope, we can start again with compassion and this clarity, this sort of radical, clear presence, or honesty, really, is another word, and supported by... Caring, not wanting to suffer, having had enough suffering, willing to kind of be a beginner again because all of our expert ideas about how not to suffer are stressful <laughs> and they don't work. So, what comes to mind from the talk tonight? Questions you might have or comments from your own practice? Yeah, great.
0: Talking about habits when we're sitting and thinking, you know, planning, and all that stuff. And laid that going and I've gone through a stressful part of my work, and so a lot of times those situations will come to mind while I'm sitting, and I start going into figuring it out, coming up with a solution. It's like, I, and it's hard to just say stop. So what I've done lately like is I've said, I can leave, I can set this aside for now.
1: Even when you do go back later, see if you can notice that, as you go back to a habit, that I'm going back to this habit, but I don't need to. Like you notice that part. Like, maybe the going back to the habit isn't quite as desperate as maybe it was in the past. So you know, let's say you're working with TV, or you're working with some addictive behavior. And you really work with that, like you feel the impulse. Like you said, it can be quite difficult. It can feel like a life and death that struggle but you really kind of keep coming back to something else not doing that not planning when you don't need to plan not worrying about something you don't need to worry about it's just coming back to the moment to hearing to feeling the body and then you know and then you're about to plan or worry or whatever but it will be that habit will be a little bit more porous it won't be so heavy because now you understand you don't have to go back that the impulse to do this is just an impulse. It isn't an absolute, you know, I have to do this. There's a lot of freedom just in that, just in the weakening of our impulses, our habits. There's a lot of freedom. Even though we may still be carried away by our habits, they're not as heavy. The the tightness or the identification or attachment isn't as strong. Other thoughts people have? Yes. Yes. It's well, Mary? It is. Yeah. Something that is confusing
0: to me I'm thinking about relating to my... Research.
1: Maybe a little louder, Mary. I, I'm
0: relating to my adult, young adult daughter. And, uh, it's confusing to me because of the concept of interdependence and because I do feel
1: Well, but it's so, it's just pragmatic. It's like, is it helping?
0: Well, no, of course not. But what does help, I mean, doing?
1: We'll find out. I'm
0: not yet convinced that just...
1: Loving her without doing. Yes, it's hard to think that that will be enough. I don't know. Yeah. But, but there's two things here. The one thing is what will be useful for your daughter. First of all, you you may you're, you're probably never going to really know. It's not like you can do experiments or I'll try this and then you know see how that works and, until you figure out what the right thing is and then do that. There's no way to know ahead of time. But what you can know is like when. Uh, through trial and error when you try something and it doesn't work then it's like you want to be devoted to the truth this is part of the flavor of wisdom this is the clarity part of it it's like there's a real allegiance to the truth when our life has shown us something directly we're independent It doesn't matter what anybody else has said I saw this happening you know I tried to fix my daughter now she resents me you know I see this directly we want, to be, we want to be respectful of that teacher. You know, that interaction has been our teacher. And we want to, just like, you know, we show respect to teachers, we want to respect the information that we have received, the feedback that we have received from life. We want to reflect on it and integrate it so that in the next moment, it's informed by what we've learned from the previous moments, and and part of this allegiance to the truth is we don't want to keep doing what doesn't work.
0: So I feel like I'm not being, showing allegiance to my own truth if I don't speak that truth, even though speaking that truth leads to. Difficulties.
1: Yeah. But you might have to reflect on what your truth is. Like you may think your truth is I need to say something to my daughter. But your truth may be more like I really care about my daughter and I don't want her to suffer. That's different than the truth that I have to say something because I'm responsible for steering her, helping her steer her way through life. So your truth, you may be confused about your truth. Your truth may be, I really care about my daughter and I don't want her to suffer. You can be deeply established in that truth. But that's different than you being responsible for steering her way. For two different things. So you might need to take a step back because, see, this is what's so hard for parents. I mean, I'm not a parent, but I, it's pretty easy to see what happens. Certain things are demanded of parents when the children are young. But, the, but the, what's demanded of you when the child's young is different than what's demanded of you when the child's older. And that's a hard transition. So what you have to do is you have to keep sort of taking steps backward to something that's very subtle, but still very powerful, and I think really supportive and useful for yourself and especially for your daughter, which is unconditional love no matter what mistake she makes, no matter what kind of life she lives, you understand she's a human being. Because of genetics, and because of proximity, you really care about her. And you really connect to her suffering. And you're willing to be close to her no matter the twists and turns in her life, knowing that your time of steering is over. <laughs> and now you're, now all you have left to do is love her unconditionally. That's still your role, you know, and and then as your friendship with her develops and the sort of uh, parent-child relationship fades away, then as a friend, you can take her invitations to give her advice, you know, just like you would with one of your friends. But somehow that transition has to happen. Now, I don't know where you are in that transition, but that transition has to happen. Kids and parents have to become friends. And I'm not saying that happens very often. But if you don't want to suffer, we need to move in that direction. And if you don't want to be the cause for suffering your daughter's life. And you know both of you are equally responsible, in a way, for making it happen. Because neither of you want to suffer or be the cause for suffering for the other. But I'm in no way trying to suggest it's easy. But, but I think it's really true that you have to make that transition, and you know this is true even for people who don't have that genetic connection, or even if it's an adopted daughter, that kind of deep connection of having raised somebody. Um, but we have this even in our interpersonal, where we're parental to our partners and to our good friends, and times, and then in other situations, people are parental to us, and. You know, basically, we want to move out of that. We don't want to be dependent on that relationship because, even though it may be appropriate in moments, you know, your daughter may crash and have some crisis, and for ten minutes she may be a little girl again and want you to be the big mama again. But that—it's probably not going to last for more than a few moments, and you've got to—you know—you have to be nimble, you know, so that you're not falling into that habit because it's a habit. But you're really part of this interdependent thing here. And you're responding to her. And she's responding to you. Good luck.
0: (laughs) There's
1: a little time left to throw other thoughts by the other parents. Yeah, Anya. What is the difference between
0: unhealthy kind of struggle Pushing yourself to overcome challenges and, and you know push past your comfort zone and, and pushing yourself to do things that you don't want to do and that make you feel
1: all agitated inside, but that you know that doing those things will help you grow in your career or as a person or whatnot. That's a great so, what's preventing you from doing them? Yeah, she was saying, well, you tell me if I have it right, Anya, but something about. Feeling that there are things in life that she really wants. I don't know if you said the word wants, but that would be good, and struggling to make them happen. Yeah, and so the question is you know, how do you relate to those things that seem to require a lot of efforting or a lot of struggle? Well, this practice takes a lot of struggle, a lot of effort. I mean, I wouldn't, it's like we use different words, so I wouldn't use the word struggle. it takes a lot of vigilance and a lot of persistence and if you feel like you should be doing something and you're not then doesn't it make sense to get really interested in that so instead of immediately feeling like I should be doing this and I'm not and being mad or angry or uh, resistant about what you think is in the way why not just get interested like if it, really, if it truly is something you should be doing, why wouldn't you be doing it? If it really is for your good, why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we doing things for our good? Why aren't we sitting every day? I mean, it's a really good question. Right, but then, but we look at those things then. I mean, like, maybe it's, maybe it's that. Maybe it's that we don't think sitting is useful. You know, so maybe on the one hand, you think that working hard to get ahead is useful. On the other hand, you go, what's the point? So it's like we have to really uh, own that we don't really know what leads to happiness. It's a big part of a spiritual path. If you're interested in a spiritual path, which basically is questioning the worldly path, which is, getting what we want in life and avoiding what we don't want in life as the means for happiness. So if you're interested in the spiritual life, it is the starting to question all of our attempts to be happy. So that's what I would suggest. If you if you feel strongly, you should be doing something, and yet you don't seem to be doing it. And you have these reasons. You think I'm lazy, or these people are in my way, or life isn't fair, and I'm not getting the right breaks, or you know whatever. Um, it just to bring a sense of uh, interest and understanding to that whole predicament, like, is is the charge I have around this justified? Do I can I be happy on my way to getting what I think will lead me to happiness? So we think having a partner will lead to happiness. Well, doesn't it make sense to be a really happy, content, peaceful human being on our way? Being a happy, content, peaceful human being. I mean, why not practice that ease and freedom now? Yeah. And so,
0: is part of what you're asking um, whether or not, just to clarify, you're not saying to not do things that are hard.
1: No, this is really hard.
0: This is really hard. And the struggling that's kind of extraneous, like getting out of the way, worrying and and being afraid, and that kind of struggling. And if your question is, so are you saying, don't do stuff that's hard, things that are in your mind that you think I should do this, but it's hard and big and hairy and tough, that let it be hard
1: and keep breathing through it. It's not like I
0: know how you do that. <laughs> but as I understand, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's that go ahead and have it be hard. In the, go ahead and, and let your daughter be who she is and let it be hard, because it's hard. But somehow, in this path, it's okay to have
1: hard things. Yeah, like like the community making this building possible. It was hard and yes. in, in all kinds of different ways it was really difficult for all of us involved and um, but the idea is if we related to the building as this is going to make us happy that then it would be, would have been hard and much more suffering and to the degree that it was a hard task and we just kept doing the next thing but what we weren't expecting it to somehow lead to some lasting or permanent happiness then it's a lot lighter so you can like you might be for whatever reason karmically genetically just the culture you grew up in you might be really uh, gung-ho about becoming the first female president of the United States of America and there's absolutely nothing wrong with attempting to you know putting in motion what you think will lead could possibly lead in that direction But if there's a charge that you need this to be happy, then it's going to be a really suffering life. But if it's just you're noticing that you have these inclinations and you're you're kind of using the attempt to become president as a way of seeing the extra and letting go of that, but still doing what's next to become president, then there's nothing wrong with that. It's nothing wrong with having a big vision or a simple vision, like living as a hermit someplace in the woods. The key is to use the particular vision that we do have to learn about what's extra, and to practice being happy and free in the process of becoming whatever we're going to become. So it's not so much what we're going to become that's going to cause the happiness, but the happiness is in the becoming. You know, like we're learning how to be happy in the process of becoming. And eventually, we're all becoming the person who's dying. I mean, that's all in store for us. So, we want to practice being happy on the way so we're not disappointed, like somehow we missed it. You know, here we are. You now, where is that happiness I've been working so hard for? You know, and we feel like we haven't learned much. So, we need to leave it here. Let's just take a few moments and let go of the words. Appreciate the silence together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.